afternoon, good evening, good morning. It is Thursday, the 5th of December. We are in the final year of 2013. The final year of 2013. Final month. So. <laughs> final month. It's been a long year, clearly. <laughs> I, I, I'm living in a bit of an altered reality. Um, welcome to episode number 31 of the It's a Monkey podcast. You with Kevin Garber and James Peter. We are the co-founders of 89N, which is the home of products such as Manage, Flitter, and CheckDog. Thanks for joining us. We always love to hear from you. Please tweet us at monkeypodcast or email us. We'll give you a shout out on the show and a special welcome to you if you are listening to this while using manage flutter often we just put up a little link at the top of manage flutter and you can have a listen while you uh, clean up your twitter account we've got a great show lined up for you as always later on in the show we will be interviewing andrew hill who is the management editor of financial times in london he wrote an interesting article called the rules of innovation can be flexible based on some findings um, and discussions at an innovation conference um, that, uh, or at a conference that the Financial Times puts together. So uh, we spoke to him a little while back, and uh, we'll, um, that's coming up a little bit later in the show. But as always, some of the latest um, tech news in our industry, things move really fast. There are always a million stories, and James and I always struggle to to pick the two or three stories as um, that are interesting. But um, here we go. This week's new stories. Amazon um, launched something, James, called Prime Air, something that they say the team has been working on um, and the next in their next generation research and development lab. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So it's their... Um it's their approach to drone delivery. So we obviously know a lot about drones for sort of um, dealing airstrikes and that kind of stuff for the military. But I guess this is kind of the first, you know, commercial use, uh, sort of large scale use of it. Um, and there's definitely been companies that have talked about this before, but obviously Amazon doing it is a, is a big deal because just their volume alone is, is you know, going to make a... A huge dent into it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, the idea is is that um, uh, you know if you live in certain areas within range of a of of drones from one of their their facilities, then um, basically instead of having somebody actually deliver the package to your door, they load it on a drone and the drone flies up and it finds its way to your house and it lands in your garden and and you can have your package within within thirty minutes from ordering it, which is which is kind of crazy. I, so. I I I don't think. Um I think there's going to be huge community backlashes to drones. I cannot see drones. Um, I mean, I watched the video, which is very impressive. They got this little drone that picks up a package and goes and delivers it. I just don't see that the communities are going to want the sky filled with all sorts of drones. Because obviously, then Amazon are not going to be the only one that want to use it. There'll be there'll be all sorts of companies zipping around with yeah, packages. Uh, look, I, I can understand that. I mean, there's definitely been a lot of negative backlash that have come out of this. You know, a lot of people have criticized Amazon of saying, you know, this isn't realistic. They've basically just done this for, you know, Black Friday sales in order to get a lot of press out of it. But, um, you know, I think just the convenience factor alone is just... I think eventually that will win out. Maybe I'm too optimistic about this stuff, but um, I think all the all of the, the problems with it are all surmountable. Um, I mean, if we lived in a world where, you know, electricity didn't exist, it would be hard to imagine that we would have, you know, electricity lines running along our streets and basically every single place where there's humans are going to have electricity lines. It's just such a weird thing if you didn't have them to imagine um, and you just consider that... Uh, you know, infeasible. But, you know, with drones, I'm, I'm sure there's ways around these problems. You know, you can sort of create fight, flight paths in certain ways they have to navigate. And and it's a very different environment from sort of having planes flying flying all overhead. It's um, it's much less much less risky in some ways. Um, so I, I think I think there'll be ways around all the problems. I, I'm still fairly optimistic. I, th I think, you know, I think it's mostly down to just government regulation at this point. I think it, I think it will happen. Um, in their F FAQ, they frequently ask questions. They say when we'll be able to choose um, Prime Air as a delivery option. Um, we hope that the FAA's rules will be in place as early as sometime in 2015. So that's just just over a year's time. Mm. Look, I I hear you. I think I think uh, um, flight paths are an interesting um, you know way of of dealing with some of the issues. But if they're looking at door to door delivery, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a remote controlled um, airplane field no um, so I've been a couple of times and um, 
having these and and that noise in the video reminded me of the remote controlled airplanes <laughs> that really little buzzy mm. high pitched noise and these places are really really noisy and um again that yeah, yeah there may be technical solutions to that yeah. i'm sure they will progressively get get quieter and you know you can do things like force them to fly along roadways or something and busy highways and stuff so they're not going to be flying to your house unless they're actually delivering something so i don't imagine it's just going to be a free-for-all you know stuff flying you know direct paths over people's heads i think it's definitely going to be sort of restricted to certain routes i think that's the only way you can manage it i think that's probably why it's taking so long with the faa is it mm. um, as well because they have to sort of make sure this stuff is going to work correctly so i think the only way to do it particularly when you got you have to sort of manage planes as well as this stuff is you have to you know put restricted airways in there um, I mean the other interesting thing people have been talking about is you know what happens with you know people shooting down drones and you know hijacking them and that kind of stuff but I don't know it's kind of like anything it's like you know then then the police get involved and I'm sure these things can have cameras on them and I'm sure there's plenty of ways around them I don't think there's any any problem with it that's that's not insurmountable so I'm I'm optimistic maybe not 2015 maybe maybe 2016 but yeah I'm still optimistic I'm more optimistic about driverless cars that that I think is just you know, I think the difference is the driverless cars are still the tech is still a little bit off but the drones are there already and it's kind of just regulations so I think that's the the difference at this point logistical issues I think, well, I think we'll have drones for we'll have have driverless cars think so? yeah yeah although did you see Amazon getting into driverless cars I, as well I, I saw there was a story yeah, about that's interesting uh, Amazon getting and speaking of driverless cars which there's there's actually a link with our next story where Uber which is the service it is live in Sydney it's been live in Sydney for uh, and I think Melbourne as well for a while but in the states it's been a couple of years Uber is the service where you just basically uh, request a, a taxi on your phone it comes along, picks you up, and it takes you to where you want to going. It's prepaid. Um, in in Sydney, you save ten percent on the credit card fee, which is a terrific uh, plus because that's a bit of a ripoff in Sydney. Um, but um, so um, some Uber financial numbers were leaked by someone, and Uber being a private company, of course, they own they are no financial numbers. So it's always interesting to see these high growth companies, and Uber have been growing in leaps and bounds. And the li- the link with driverless cars is that. Um, Google Ventures recently invested in Uber, mm. quite a quite a large round they were oh, involved okay. with, mm. and one of the speculations were that mm. um, Go- Google's driverless cars, which oh, they've yeah, been developing, a really good fit. Yeah, it's a nice fit because Im- imagine you just call Uber and a driverless car rocks up, and you know that's it's another model. Yeah. Along, you know they've got the normal taxis, they've got the black cars, and then maybe they'll just have you know maybe it'll be cheaper or more expensive or well, whatever whatever however it plays out. So the numbers that uh, leaked out were that um, Uber seems to be doing a, a over one billion dollar gross a year, which um, and they they make about twenty percent. So they um, you know their revenue um, after commissions is about two hundred and thirteen million a year, which is which is pretty impressive for such a mm. uh, for yeah, such a it's new very company. Good. Yeah, yeah, still fairly young and doing that kind of revenue. Yeah, it's a very good sign. I chat to a lot of. Uh, do you use your Uber in Sydney? So I did actually try and use it once, and it completely failed for me. There was nothing available; it just didn't work. And I tried it like ten different times. I was really desperate for something, and I just couldn't get anything. So what? my one experience didn't work. What suburb? City uh, or it, w- it was a little bit out. It was sort of Carlton, so it was a little bit out of the city, and then mm. going down to Loftus, which is way out, a bit of way out of the city. I could see like cars on the dial, but for whatever reason, none would come. Mm. I don't know why. So, um, and I mean, this was pretty late at night as well as when the, the trains had stopped working. So, um, but um, yeah, look, I'm I'm sure there's there. I want to try and use it again when there's a when there's an opportunity when it's more sort of day to day. But I haven't haven't had a great experience so far. Yeah, look, I've I've used it. It definitely doesn't work as well in Sydney at the moment as it works in San Francisco, where mm. I use it a lot. There's obviously, a, I mean, that's where they started, and that's where there's a critical mass, and the, the cab service is so lousy in San Francisco that it's really um, grown very very fast. But I have used it here a lot, and I, I have spoken to. A, um, I I always ask the the cabbies here, how's it working out? What's working? What's not working? It's a few things that they don't like mm, um, quite. they don't like the fact that um, y- they don't know where the uh, the destination is oh, I'm surprised it doesn't tell them because it's included in the booking 
Yeah, it doesn't tell them where the destination mm. is. Um, it's also, um, what, what are some of the other things? The, the, the commissions are very generous mm. to them. So they, they, they do like the it's commission. Profitable. Mm. Very profitable to them. They do like the prepaid nature of it. They say mm-hmm. that it saves them time in you know swiping credit cards and signing and mm. which if you think about it during the, the day of a cab driver must actually add up probably to as much as an i don't know half an hour yeah definitely. maybe even more well, particularly if you're doing lots of short trips it can almost be you know half the time the trip is you know paying for it particularly if it's a business customer and they've got to get a receipt and they've got to sign it and yeah it's a big chunk of time exactly but they they don't seem to be doing a massive because i also when i use it they there's no cars a lot of the time and i sort of live and work around the city I can you use the taxis in Sydney? Like, is because you can do taxis or Uber or I Uber o- app. I always use um, the taxis. Oh, okay. So that yeah. actually works. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, okay. it works. Mm. So now in San Francisco, they got um, Uber X as well, which is just anyone that wants to sort of run a little taxi service. Now I think there there is some pre qualification required, but. Um, and then normal taxis plug into that as well. But what's interesting is what they've done is they now, Uber are offering, I don't think they're offering it here yet, but in, in the States, they're offering a service where they're helping finance cars so you can use it for the UberX service as a provider. Hmm. That's interesting. So, the, you know, Uber's an interesting company in that and that they, they're sort of developing this platform and, and coming it from, from different angles and... Mm. Um, a real classic case of disrupting an industry. I mean, I take my hat off to them, both to Uber and to Airbnb, in that the the regulatory issues. I mean, to me, just you know, a real pain, and they and they you up against very established industries with huge vested interests, um, all sorts of issues, insurance, yep. and they and they're tackling it head on. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. They're doing well, clearly by the revenue numbers. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pity it doesn't have uh, country breakdowns. I mean, I, I don't think in Australia it's, um, you know. Another service they should probably offer is I've got a, quite a couple of female friends that, that really have had problems in, in catching cabs alone late at night. Mm, in what way? Just haven't felt safe with the guys oh, and okay. guys saying mm. inappropriate things. and The cab you know, driver? The cab driver. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. What, what kind of service, like reviews for cab drivers or something? Well, in London, I believe, already quite a few years ago, there was a service that was a cab service by woman for woman. That oh, offered okay. a bit of a premium. Hmm, interesting. Um, so if they would have an Uber female service um, that, you know, yeah. especially on Friday, Saturday nights. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting, yeah. The... Sorry, I was just thinking probably some men would use it as well. <laughs> yeah, no, you have to pre-qualify and, you know, all of that. Address. <laughs> but, um, you know, another thing that Uber should do, James, is whenever I get into an Uber cab, I, uh, I ask them, how's Uber going? And we, we chat. And usually they seem to be um, a bit of a more motivated cab driver that's, you know, trying to drive more business. What would be is if you could have some sort of little profiles, right? Like of your interests or what you do. And <laughs> and Uber tells you like good talking points for your- Conversation starters. Conversation <laughs> starters. So say you've got a cabbie and he's, I don't know, he's into, you know, sci-fi and your profile says sci-fi and it says recommended topic of conversation. So even on a 10 minute trip, you just- I don't know. I think personally I'd like a talking or no talking option and you can have like I think that's no great. conversation and you can choose that option and they get in the cab, they don't say a word to you, they've got your destination and I think that's a, that's you're in a, a bad mood, it's perfect. You know? That's a clever option as well, right? Because yeah. sometimes I am in a talk, talkative mood and other times I'm just like, just leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. And you have the talking, non-talking option. If you've got the talking option, you have a conversation starter. That's pretty cool, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. I think we should um, definitely email, pitch it to them, yeah. Or email Travis with that idea. I follow him on, on Facebook, actually. Um, he's an he's an interesting CEO to follow. By the way, if you're an entrepreneur out there, and uh, um, I Google some of uh, the CEO of Uber, Travis Kelnick, I think is his surname. Um, he's a really bold CEO and uh, quite inspirational. So so Google him and, and follow him on Facebook or Twitter. Speaking of Facebook, Facebook um, changed their news for your algorithm yet again. Um, this week. I don't know if it's live. I think it's live on all accounts. I don't know. Have you noticed anything different on on your Facebook? 
Um, no, it seems pretty similar to it still to me, but I think they tend to roll out stuff here a little bit slower than they do. I think they tend to roll it out to the US first, so I haven't actually noticed any difference. I think they roll it out to New Zealand first. Oh, do they? Mm. Uh, maybe, yeah. I know with some of the other big changes, they roll it out to New Zealand first. Mm. So, but who knows? Who knows? But, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's an interesting uh, way to kind of battle... Um, you know, the discovery stuff, like, uh, you know, I guess Twitter's got a very strong news discovery and Facebook's never really had that. Um, you, know, you know, it's been hard to... It's been hard for people to use Facebook for news discovery because stuff just gets squashed by everybody's posts. You know, friends' posts tend to get elevated quite highly. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. So, in theory, this, this change should have news you're interested in showing up more often in your, in your feed, towards the top of your feed. So, yeah interesting to see if it works yeah look i mean facebook seems to be coming more and more like twitter and less and less like facebook <laughs> um yeah yeah in some ways yeah it's it's um you know the early days where it was dominated by people sharing their personal status update posts and um, having that sort of what they call ambient intimacy seems to have just evaporated it doesn't seem to have any privacy or or, or intimacy ambient intimacy at all it just seems to be news feeds and um, promoted posts and and people sharing things that um, are not private at all mm, yeah yeah no it is true I you have to be very careful when you post private stuff and particularly as people's Facebook uh, networks grow as well you just have so many people on there you just can't you know you can't post things that would be offensive to anybody really you have to just be very um, very shallow I guess with what you post do you think um do you think there's room for a new social media network? I sure <laughs> do. <laughs> <laughs> one with limited scope, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's there's always room for one new social media network, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, God, how many how many do we how many are there now? Snapchat, Instagram, Pinterest, the list goes on and on. There will definitely be things that come after Twitter and Facebook. I don't think that's gonna be where, you know. 10 years from now, I don't think that's where people are going to be sharing their, you know, thoughts and communicating with people. I mean, that there was still, I'm sure they will still exist in some capacity, but I think other things will be more popular. Um, I mean, it's interesting that MySpace has still actually got quite a bit of adoption. I'm, I'm still surprised when I see its numbers. There, there was an article, I might have sent it to you, that's mm. where you saw the graph of all the social media um, companies or Maybe. platforms. Yeah. And MySpace was still in there with real user numbers. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it just shows that once you get that kind of traction, it's, you know, people, there are always going to be some people who they're just happy with the service. They're going to they're gonna keep going. So I'm sure, you know, Twitter and Facebook are going to exist. But I, I also think, you know, that they're not the, I'm not, the end of social sharing i think there are still problems and and definitely going to be uh, other networks that solve them better well it's like a lot of things and you know a lot of things in life in general become the victim of their own success yeah definitely yeah you know which which is why there'll always be opportunity for new entrants always opportunity for small business always opportunity for new innovation and that's that's the exciting thing i mean even in even in our you know small experience with with managed flitter as it's grown, they've, they, it's been harder for us in certain ways to innovate and around certain aspects. And um, other companies have innovated better in other aspects. So it's, and you can see with the big companies, it's the, these things just compound, in, in, and w which is why it's so, so exciting to always be an entrepreneur and doing entrepreneurial innovation is that there's, it's, uh, it's an infinite universe out there in our industry. Anyway, you're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast, episode number 31. Remember, you can go to back to the website and listen to old um, podcasts if you so wish. There are 30 of them. Um, also, if you go to the website, you can leave a comment about any other topics. Um, we love your comments. And um, if you are listening on the website, in you can also subscribe via iTunes and it will just... Uh, um, sort of come into your feed every couple of weeks we are aiming to keep this podcast every couple of weeks we've been pretty good at it we may or may not miss the next one in two weeks but um, we are going to keep them pretty regular and we've got some great guests lined up if you would like to be interviewed email us or tweet us if you have any suggestions tweet us or email us we want the show to be interesting for you so we're going to take a short break 
And uh, then we're going to have an interesting chat. I spoke with Andrew Hill, who's the management editor of the Financial Times, and uh, I spoke to him about the rules of innovation. And uh, we will be back with that interview after this break. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. We are on episode number 30. Can't believe it's been that many episodes already. Um, as you know, we talk about everything relating to tech, the tech economy, innovation on this podcast. Innovation is a particularly fascinating topic and a particularly slippery topic because it is something that everyone tries to capture organizations try to capture it but it's 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 quite elusive and it's quite difficult to define and i um, read an article a little while ago um, in the financial times which is actually one of the few international newspapers that we can get in hard old-fashioned analog copy in sydney australia which I still quite like, even though I'm a tech guy. And the title of the, the topic was, uh, the article was, The Rules of Innovation Can Be Flexible. And I've tracked down the author um, of that article, Andrew Hill, who is the management editor at the Financial Times. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, Kevin. So, Andrew, this, this article spun out of a, a, a conference that um, you guys held around innovation, am I correct? Yeah, we have an annual conference called FT Innovate, um, and we're having one again uh, this year also in uh, in Silicon Valley. This one was in London. Um, and uh, we discuss current themes of, uh, of innovation across uh, across a range of areas with, with practitioners and consultants and technologists. Now, I, was, I like the breakdown of some of these points that came out. Let's get straight into them because some of them are a little bit counterintuitive. So let's talk about these points that you wrote about that were discussed and um, um, sort of highlighted as, 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 as being um, ways to achieve innovation somewhat. Sure. I, I mean, I noticed as we went through the conference and in the work that I've done on innovation that this is a this is an area laced with contradictions, and I suppose that's not surprising because you would expect if everybody agreed on the rules and the rules all worked, um, that uh, there would be people innovating away. But clearly, a whole part of innovation is that people don't succeed; they try and they don't succeed. So I'd identified sort of seven examples um, of these contradictions. Um, I mean, the first one, I suppose, is that the rule is that flexibility achieves more than process and structure, that you get more out of your innovators if you allow them a bit of space, free time, you give them that kind of um, long-range thinking, uh, that's going to spawn creativity. Um, but uh, there is a, a counter view which emerged from the conference uh, that really... Uh, as soon as companies get bigger, they do they do need rules. They need some element of process. Um, and indeed, there's some research that suggests that a few rules can even spur the sort of rebels um, into being more creative because they push against the rules uh, and they develop things almost um, counter to uh, the process that they've been put into. So there's a, there's a contradiction at the heart of that. It reminds me of... Um um, one of our, our staff members who used to work for a big telco and he there was so much red tape in getting approval for a project that he knew would add significant value that he just went stealth built this thing and then when it was all ready to go he showed his superiors and they were absolutely blown away so uh, there's definitely something to be said for that yeah that's that's not uncommon i mean there's a famous case of the japanese engineer who invented uh, the sort of blue LED light, which is at the sort of heart of um, uh, all the LED lighting that we now 
now have, who uh, actually went against several orders to stop his work and blew up his own laboratory at one point. So right. that kind of been great for his colleagues, but ended up making this uh, great breakthrough. Interesting. Um, and the next point you mentioned, the best innovations are conceived on a, on a shoestring budget. Um, is an, is, is, do you address that, that sort of common th thought? Yes. The, I mean, there's a lot, of, lot written about frugal innovation, uh, particularly out of developing markets, innovations that are developed for um, uh, you know, markets where people can't pay as much for a, a heart monitor machine or, a, um, uh, or, or consumer electronics. Um, and these are uh, encouraging innovations that are then reversed back into developed markets often. But I mean, my, my point there, I think, is that one shouldn't confuse the innovative products that are made for a low-budget market or for a market with a limited budget with low-budget innovation. I mean, th there's the famous example of Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works, which is the, um, the factory that they set up in the uh, 40s to develop the next generation of fighter jets. And um, it's often assumed that that, is, that was a kind of shoestring operation because it was put into a uh, factory next to a kind of evil-smelling uh, plastics facility, which is why they ended up calling it the Skunk Works. But in fact, um, as the head of product innovation for Samsung, who was speaking at our conference, pointed out, the Skunk Works was extremely well-resourced, not only with money, but also with the best engineers that Lockheed could supply. So uh, it was it was by no means a shoestring operation. I mean, I think there there clearly is a sense to the saying that um, necessity is the mother of invention. I think people forced into a tight budget will find ways of being creative about using it. Uh, but at the same time, if you've got something big that you want to develop, you don't want to skimp on it. So there's a contradiction there. And that contradiction is very much, um, you know, just, just again proves how multifactorial and, and nuanced this innovation process is because you can argue, and it's interesting to argue each um, counter-argument and argument. For instance, Google with Google+, Plus, they've thrown a lot of resources at it and they, they can't quite get that flywheel of a social media network going despite all the resources and alleged innovation, um, in, in, you know, amongst their ranks. Yes, I mean, I think that the you know, piling, pouring money into stuff uh, is obviously uh, not always going to work. I suppose the, the point is that you can do a combination of both. I mean, one of the advantages, obviously, of the web is that it is possible to innovate at quite low cost. Um, you don't have to build expensive prototypes. You can try things out um, on, uh, on a very small scale, uh, and then you can almost unnoticed withdraw them if they don't work. Um, but I think if you've got some, some big idea, clearly yeah, the, the ability to then invest heavily is important. I mean, I've just uh, been reading the, the book by um, Brad Stone called The Everything Store, which is about mm -hmm. Amazon. And one of the kind of fundamental things that Jeff Bezos did with Amazon was to aim high and then pour a lot of money into it. And luckily he had tolerant shareholders and still has who are prepared to accept these levels of innovation, but I think you realised that you couldn't, um, if you were going to bet, bet, you had to you had to bet pretty big. The next idea, youth Trump's experience. Um, I find this one interesting as as my own personal years edge on up. Yes, I think I like this one as well, and for the same reason, probably. But, Self interested. Um, yeah, it's clearly it's clearly the case that um, you know the so called digital generation. Um, uh, is obviously at ease with technology, uh, particularly on social and mobile, in a way that the older generations are not. Um, but again, I think what was an interesting you know, side effect of that is that you end up um, wrongly, probably, just assuming that um, the lack of ex that the youth compensates for the lack of experience. And the point very clearly from contributors to our conference was um, that you need to have a combination of both. Um, and indeed, uh, a 
again, uh, Luke Mansfield from Samsung, Samsung who uh, spoke to us, uh, was adamant that he really thought that experience was going to become a, a key ingredient in the coming years and that companies would even have to sort of share experience with what he called experience farms to cultivate this, uh, this resource. And I think what he's driving at there is that there is a, a sort of uh, seasoned executives, seasoned innovators know you want to, you want to harness the enthusiasm and obviously the, the facility of um, younger workers. But at the same time, they, if they haven't gone through the mill, they haven't seen what can succeed, if they don't know when to fight for an idea, when to abandon an idea, then, then they're not going to be uh, much used to you. So there's, a, there's a, an interesting combination there. And I think the assumption in a lot of companies may well be, well, we'll just have to get all these bright young developers going and, and we'll, we'll come up with the next big thing. But it does need to be tempered with that experience. And I think the model of Google and Facebook in that, you know, you have your young hotshots and then you have some adult supervision seems to be quite a uh, good model to to get the best of both worlds. Yes, I think that's right. And, I mean, that goes at the management level, obviously. Uh, there may well be points, going back to the point about structure, um, uh, where you need to have a certain amount of um, you know, experience at the top that keeps an eye on your youthful innovators. I think the other point, and, and this is just a... Uh, more of a market point is that clearly there's going to be a large proportion in many developed markets of older people. So in the same way that the assumption is made that we must have young people who are going to provide the digital uh, tools for the digital generation, uh, there's going to come a point when people are going to say, hang on, we need, we need a few people who are closing in on retirement here to uh, help us develop the kind of tools that are necessary for um, uh, for that older generation as they, as they live longer and longer. It was, there was an interesting article about billion-dollar companies in, in TechCrunch. I think they call them, you know, the unicorns. I don't know if you read that article. I think it's only within the last five five days to a week it came out. Um, no, I haven't seen that. Yeah, really interesting article that broke down um, y y the, the billion-dollar companies. And one of the um, demographics that came out of that, that is despite the fallacy of you know innovation peaking in its its 20s the average age of the founders was actually in their 30s so um right. you, you know i think some of the the hotshot young ones do get noticed be perhaps because they are a little bit more um, statistical outliers but um yeah all's not over if you're not 21 and you haven't um, listed your company yet there, there is still hope yes i hope so too um, so innovations are always new That's, this is also um, a, a fallacy I particularly f find of people that haven't started businesses as well sometimes they hang on to that, that, that ultimate um, you know totally 100% original idea before they want to start something yeah I mean I think that is I mean clearly we, we always going to want um uh, for want of a better phrase, you know, blue sky thinking people who are going to break entirely new ground. But I also think there's quite a lot of work that can be done uh, in finding established habits and new ways of using or, or exploiting them. I, I was out in Silicon Valley last year and I visited a number of companies, often staffed by the, by the, by the young digital generation that we're talking about, uh, many of whom had made money out of things like Facebook. Um, and one of the things that they were looking at was the very, very mundane uh, issue of how do offices or big organizations work? What are, the, what are the digital tools that we can put in place to ease the day-to-day -day tasks of, of ordinary office and, uh, and uh, uh, factory workers? Um, and one of the ones that was showcased at our conference was um, a company called Klarna, which is a Swedish e-payments company that's trying to make the, reduce the number of people who get to the end of an online payment process and then abandon the purchase. And uh, what they found, uh, what they started um, introducing right from the beginning was the old-fashioned invoice as a means of payment. You know, you, 
you buy now and you, you pay later with an invoice. And indeed, some of their material, although everything that they do is online from the point of view of the consumer, um, there's an old-fashioned envelope that sometimes drops through people's uh, uh, front doors with the um, uh, with, a, with an invoice in for the online services. And they're discovering that more people are picking this up. It's not just that it's popular with existing consumers. People are opting for this way of thinking. And so, you know, that was a surprise to me because you'd have thought they would have been looking, as indeed others are, at ways that would make payments entirely online and entirely using new tools. And they are doing that, but at the same time, they're using the old, the old-fashioned ways because they're sort of tried and tested. So it's an innovation using, uh, clearly it's a, it's a new tool uh, or a new service using an old tool. There are so many edge cases and the markets are so big that you just have to find one one edge case and, and service it well and tweak a niche and uh, you've got yourself a business. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I think the uh, there's clearly in some quarters, as you mentioned, a desire to sort of change the world with something that's entirely new. Um, but, you know, even the, even the brand new stuff... Um, is often an iteration of something that has gone before. Again, coming back to Amazon, I mean, clearly the Kindle uh, in the e-readers was innovative. Um, but in fact, the first generation of e-readers, which actually sold pretty well, came about seven or eight years before, and, and Bezos turned down an opportunity to invest in them. So that a lot of things are, are iterations without you knowing. And sometimes it's to do with a combination of that timing uh, and technology that means that it works this time if it didn't work the time before. I, I guess the innovation is in the execution, which I think some people you know, t- uh, forget as well. So there's, there's innovation all along the line, everywhere. It's not just in the idea. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is that you can innovate. We, we tend to, I think, assume that innovation is linked inexorably to technology Um, and this was also a very clear theme from this conference which was that actually innovation is certainly as much as not more about people than technology and also it can be about innovating business models um, ways of doing things Uh, if you come up with a new way of doing something um, can be uh, as revolutionary as if you come up with some shiny new gadget. And as Salvador Dali said, those that imitate nothing produce nothing. Yes, I like that. <laughs> Next point was keep experimenting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a, this is an important rule for innovation. You've got to keep keep running through versions. And as I mentioned before, you can you can use the web in particular uh, to um, experiment, and people do. I mean, uh, Hal Gregerson of INSEAD, who spoke at our conference, talked about a company called Coinstar, which makes those machines that convert loose change um, into notes, or, or, and they decided to uh, advance into a, an exchange of uh, loose change for vouchers, but they didn't know whether this would would work, vouchers for a range of companies. They actually built a cardboard model of their machine, put it in a parking lot with a person inside who took your change and handed it out because what they were trying to work out was whether customers would appreciate uh, the exchange. So a very kind of low-level low way of trialing and experimenting. But uh, I think what that comes up against, and this is a contradiction I can't really resolve in my own mind, is the obvious success of the kind of obsessional perfectionist like Steve Jobs or Chairman Lee of Samsung, um, you know, who who both of them famously ranted about low low quality, high defect products, um, and spent a lot of time almost literally polishing the edges of their new gadgets in order to make them uh, ever more perfect. So clearly, there's a point at which you have to close down the experimentation um, and uh, push to be sort of relentless perfectionist and that's quite a difficult combination to uh, to get to because the pressure to put out a new product is such um, that you might well go out with something that wasn't 
uh, up to the mark. And therein lies the art, I guess, of entrepreneurship, where it stops becoming a science and knowing where that level of experimentation um, should end. And, and of course, on the web, it's a lot easier because you can iterate and tweak. But that's where I take my hat off to Apple in, in, in becoming so successful in the hardware game is, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's difficult to... Um, I mean, obviously, if you've got something that is a big enough advance, people will overlook some early defects. I mean, I'm, I'm still working on a, on a first-generation iPad some of the time. Um, and to me, it's still such an advance. Uh, doubtless, when I upgrade, I'll, I'll find that the things that were wrong with it will be more obvious and more glaring. But people are prepared to accept something for a, for a big leap forward. But even there, I think one of the joys of the uh, the iPad and a lot of the Apple products, and I think this goes for the Samsung products too. Sometimes is that the um, is that they do uh, provide a, a sort of instantly um, flawless performance. You don't suddenly discover a bug on day one. So it's a um, it's it's a balance. Clearly, you need to get as good as you can. Um, when you take this out to market. But in some areas, people are prepared to accept a, a more iterative process. But I think consumers will become increasingly uh, perfectionist. How, how much, will, my question is, I suppose, how much will we want to be experimented on in future? Will we accept that that is part of the process? And how keen will we be to give up our money for something that is obviously only a trial run? Yeah, and some consumers do get annoyed when they feel that companies are are using them as cheap testing grounds and and don't don't test things properly or polish things enough and just you know use use all the feedback and uh, feel they could have done a better job. I think Microsoft in in days gone by at times were criticised a little bit for releasing products um, that weren't quite ready for market. Right. Right. Yeah. The next, the next point is uh, I find interesting because it comes down to the the heart of, of of organizations, which is the the team, the staff. That loyalty breeds complacency, i.e., that uh, you necessarily need uh, fresh blood, um, fre- you know, new new eyes and and new new ideas to to be innovative, which uh, is not necessarily true. Well, I think obviously there's a, again it's a, one of these contradictions that I identified. Where the clearly loyalty does sometimes breed complacency. People sit in their jobs; they don't they they, they get less productive, less creative. Um, but I was struck by something one of the um, venture capitalists who spoke at our conference talked about, which was the um, in the area of sort of you know, computer gaming. Uh, that Europe has become the kind of hub for this. And he suggested, uh, from experience of dealing with some of the investments in this area, that that was partly because in Silicon Valley there was such a turnover of talented engineers that you barely had your um, game developer in place before he or she was being poached away to to a competitor. Um, And obviously... At a certain point, in order to build something that's valuable, uh, you do need to keep a team together. Uh, And that's, that's, I think, a a strong lesson. And it kind of goes against the grain of what you might call the sort of LinkedIn philosophy, which um, Reid Hoffman, the the head of uh, LinkedIn, has been um, talking about, which is that you should encourage your staff to leave. I mean, that's the other... You should encourage them to think of other uh, places to go, and that they should be kept um, uh, loyal by love of working in that particular place, not by other means of threatening them to um, threatening them with uh, sanctions if they depart. One of the other contributors did talk about, uh, you know, you never leave my company because we'll always welcome you back if you leave and decide and change your mind. I think these two things coexist. What I, what I personally rail against is the idea that you would get a, um, uh, you would get an advantage from, um, from encouraging people to be, as it were, disloyal. It seems to me that there are strong reasons why you would want to keep your best people, and obviously you'd hope you'd be kept by the passion of doing the job. 
And I think, yeah, I've heard that complaint a lot about Silicon Valley, that um, there's there's a little bit of a... A, a culture of of hopping to the to the next best thing and and i think sydney is probably more si- similar to europe where um we, we don't have the luxury of the velocity of startups here and when 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 people find a good team that they enjoy working with they tend to stay um and work with that team and there are benefits um getting to know people is a very um subtle process that takes a long time and and it can take years to really, you know, deepen the team to a point where you're producing your best. Yeah, that's true. Andrew, I really appreciate your time. I do read your newspaper, um, as I mentioned in the intro. Um, I, I love it. It's um, probably the most expensive newspaper you can actually buy in Sydney. Um, the, the weekend edition, I think, has gone up to, to $8. And every time I buy it from my news agent, he sort of thinks I'm a bit crazy that I spend that m- amount in a newspaper. But I'm a newspaper junkie, and I, I particularly love the weekend editions. Um, I, I enjoy them a lot. Well, I'm grateful for your uh, your custom. We are available in other formats, I should stress. I, I have no doubt. Getting out a, a print edition. But um, uh, thank you for having me on. I, I actually I, I took my 13 year old nephew um, uh, bowling the other day and we, we went for lunch it was a Saturday and I bought some physical copies of newspapers and he found this the most fascinating thing he just I don't think he had ever seen anyone that had actually bought paper newspapers before he was just he was quite unsettled by it well, my 16 year old son just asked for a typewriter for Christmas so how about that for retro yeah, re- retro is cool. And Andrew Hill, the management editor of Financial Times, really appreciate your time and thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error free. Innovation, James, innovation is that word like. Um many buzzwords it's one of these slippery words that means many many things everyone strives for no one quite grasps grasps it grasps it when people grasp it they're not exactly sure what happened it's like it's like writing a song you know it's Mm -hmm. it's 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 it's, it's slippery yeah there's there's lots of creativity to it it's something that it's hard just to come up with stuff and it's also hard to filter out the bad stuff i think that's the hardest part of innovation you know, figuring out which things aren't going to work. Um, most time, pe- people don't even know as well. If you look at things like Twitter and um, and you know some of these you know s- new successful ideas, you know most time they just tr- they started out small. And I think if you ask any of the inventors of the product, they had no idea of the they might have thought they were onto something, but no idea of the scale that these things would turn out as. So it's, it's yeah, it's always a big unknown, which is part of the fun, really. It is part of the fun. I think it's. I think it's. It's very fearful for some people as well. Um, you know, we're not. Uh, we're not born in the world of guarantees, and that's. I. I mean, I find it fascinating. Also, I mean, you know, people that want to be entrepreneurs or innovators and, and business builders. One of the cruelest things is that university can be the worst thing for this. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely true. Yeah, you, you know, and and you know, I've been to university. I've got multiple degrees. Blah blah blah. I've, I've, I'm not pushing any particular agenda here, but I had to unlearn a lot of the analysis um, that you get to do. A lot of seeing things from both sides. A lot of that certainty uh, that somehow university just just doesn't just do- doesn't get you comfortable with uncertainty and fear you know, in, in, in what you really need on that entrepreneurship and that innovative journey. You really need to be comfortable with, it, as you said, that, that outcome, the light at the end of the tunnel could be a train or it could be the end of the tunnel. And uh, you don't really know until you're there. And, um, you know, Jason Calacanis says an interesting thing. He, um, you know, he, says, um, he says, if you want to be a good entrepreneur, um, 
apply to get into one of the great schools like Stanford or Harvard, do your first year and then drop out. <laughs> because he says, then everyone knows that you're smart enough to get in and you did your first year, right? <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great idea, yeah. I really like that one. And, and don't waste your time doing the degree because if you want to be an entrepreneur, just get out there, get scrappy, get, you know, that's do... It's probably true, actually. I mean, I can think even back to when I went to university, like I think beyond the first year, there was definitely diminishing returns. There's a lot of value you kind of get by going to university and just kind of getting the culture and, you know, exposure to those kind of, you know, people thinking in those kind of ways. But yeah, it's definitely, definitely after the first year, I think the returns diminish. So that's really great. I haven't, I haven't heard that before. I think I'm probably going to start recommending that to people. <laughs> I think I'm going to start <laughs> recommending, recommending it to, 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 to certain people as well, particularly ones that have the, the hunger. Um, also, I think, you know, what, what going to university for the first year can do is it can demystify it as well. I think mm, so there's some absolutely. people that haven't been to university they project a lot onto university they think in a way they think you you learn a huge amount more than you do which you know is is not life's a lot more subtle and a lot more complicated than that but if you go for the first year you can think you know what if i actually apply myself and i learn in other ways it's it's the the net benefits is is going to be at least the same you know Mm. Unless you want to be a surgeon, or so, so we. I think in those cases, yeah, you kind of have to. Yeah, <laughs> although I've done one year of university, and I kind of know the rest, <laughs> so I'm just going to operate on you now. So. <laughs> Who's the um, Peter Thiel? In I mean, he pays the smart uh, youngsters to drop out of uni or not go to mm. uni and go to his, um, you know. So, so I'm all I'm all for education. I just uh, I'm not sure that um, universities. I mean, that's a whole big discussion that I think about a lot. I'm fascinated by by universities and education and, and they used to have this big monopoly on on education even the libraries they used to have big monopolies on and that's all been t- smashed apart um, but anyway that's a topic for another day um, so hopefully we'll have another podcast before Christmas um, and New Year and all the rest um, but thanks for listening at always tweet us email us and um, wherever you are um, have a good one yeah have a good one